The internet is fast dividing, splitting between countries whose political systems value freedom of speech and those that enforce state censorship. Given this reality, how can the world come to understand China, the country that gave us the Great Firewall? Likewise, how can China come to understand the rest of the world? On this episode of Asia Inside Out, the podcast that provides an insider's view on Asian and global affairs, we tackle this topic and others with former Prime Minister of Australia, Kevin Rudd. Kevin, a longtime China watcher and a fluent speaker of Mandarin Chinese, is president of the Asia Society Policy Institute. Good to be with you, Jonathan. Kevin, diving right in, thinking about the average person who is beginning to understand that understanding China and Asia broadly is an important part of their life. I'd like to focus on comments made by former Google CEO Eric Schmidt, who predicted that by 2028, there would be two internets, that China would lead one internet and the United States would lead another. How does your average citizen on both sides of the Pacific begin to prepare for this possibility? I think the short answer to that, Jonathan, is with increasing confusion, concern, and complexity. Uh, a word or two about, let's call it the rise of China, and then let's dive into the uh, internet complexity. Uh, China, um, for many, many people right around the world, whatever they do in life, whether they run a garage, uh, whether they work in a factory, uh, whether they are in the financial services business, working for Wells Fargo in the southern suburbs of Chicago, doesn't really matter. What is going to happen, what's starting to happen already, is China, through the sheer size of its domestic market footprint, is going to begin uh, to shape, and from their point of view, ultimately determine the standards and the regulation which applies to one product area or service area or another right across the world. Look at the history of the 20th century. Essentially, in the post-war period, most of our global standards for products and services have been driven by you guys, the United States. Why? It's not just because of your sense of humor. It's not just because uh, you make interesting movies, which have been more often than not entertaining. It's because you've been huge. And because you've been huge and the world's largest market, using and drawing upon the strength of that market presence means that your corporations, and where necessary, your government, uh, have been in a position to say, on the internet, uh, on certain other uh, product and service standards in the world, the American standard effectively becomes the global standard. Well, here's a new reality. There's another economy uh, coming up the, the inside uh, rail uh, in, the, uh, in the great global horse race called who's going to be top dog in the global economy, and it's called China. And they're closing reasonably fast. Not quite sure they get there. They could stumble on the way through. Lots of uh, things could get in their road. But the bottom line is the United States now in market exchange rate terms is a $20 trillion economy, the largest in the world. China in market exchange rate terms is about a $12 trillion economy, number two. If its growth rate sticks at around six and America sticks at around three, then you don't have to have a Rhodes Scholarship in economics to work out that that gap uh, will uh, shrink. So China's grand strategy 
is that once it becomes the largest economy in the world, uh, to use the power of that, that is, uh, the strength of its domestic market, to begin to shape and determine its own standards for products and services around the world. And the cutting edge of that right now is the internet. Uh, Eric Schmidt I've got to know over the years. Um, while he was at Google, and, um, and I haven't seen him since he exited the scene, which has been quite recent. But I think Eric has sensed this has been coming for some time. He and the other big uh, internet service providers uh, have been engaged in uh, negotiations, formal and informal, with the Chinese over much of the last decade to see if there could be a meeting of the ways here. But that's where Eric and the others have run into, um, let's call it a hard surface. Uh, and that hard surface is the internal nature of the Chinese state is a Marxist-Leninist state. And because of that, there is a priority on central political control, on some element of surveillance uh, of the domestic population, greater or lesser, depending on where it is, and some levels, therefore, of censorship. Now, uh, when I go to China, I go to China all the time. Uh, first thing I know is I can't get Google. I go to Baidu or I go to the other Chinese um, search engines. And they're not bad. They can get your stuff reasonably quickly, except when it comes to things like Wikipedia and your normal cheat sheets that we all use, uh, they ain't there. So when the rubber hits the road and you've got a big Chinese, uh, let's call it globalized Baidu search engine, uh, and all of China's uh, major economic partners around the world have gone to uh, Baidu rather than Google, then how does that ultimately affect the information we currently access from the internet, quite apart from our use of the internet to freely communicate with one another if we're part of the Chinese system? My 14-year-old daughter grew up in Beijing until she was eight, so she left China speaking fluent Mandarin. She's been back for six years. How's her Mandarin? She's just starting to take it again in high school, in her first year in a New York City public school. And I said to her, did you tell the teacher that you used to speak this language with fluency? She said, like any teenager, no, I'm too embarrassed to tell her what's happening. Um, but I said, have you told your friends that you used to speak this language? And there, she's proud. She's absolutely excited to share the fact that she's going to do well in this class. <laughs> and yet, it's very difficult for her to explain what you just explained to our listeners, the disconnect about freedom of information. How does a teenager explain that the Internet doesn't look like the Internet in China to a teenager in Brooklyn? If you're a teenager, for example, um, and you play games, or you've got a whole lots of, let's call it, social chat, through one platform or another, uh, by and large, um, you um, have this as your normal daily life and being. Um, and uh, you can see this with young kids in Brooklyn and in Brisbane, my hometown in Australia. It's the same sort of thing. Um, and the kids are as uh, adventurous and as dorky as they are anywhere, let's call it in the wider Western world. Um, but they are used to be able to do this uh, within, let's call it, um, reasonable parameters of, uh, of uh, what's acceptable for online communication. For example, online gaming. Uh, the Chinese do censor games. Anything, for example, which uh, affects their politics, anything which affects 
certain views of the world or what they regard as socially unacceptable practices um, are just not going to make the grade uh, in an internet uh, world which is regulated by the Chinese internet censors. For some years now, the Chinese have convened each year what they call the uh, World Internet Conference. Um, and uh, I've not attended, even though I've been invited to each of them to give her keynotes, um, because I'm deeply conscious of where all this goes to in terms of, uh, frankly, uh, a deeply censored system versus one which is relatively free, uh, which we're accustomed to and have grown up with over the last 10 to 20 years, and let's call it the collective West. Speaking of regions other than the collective West and this understanding of the flow of information, uh, try to imagine you're a teenager in Uganda or in Peru or in Malaysia, uh, and all of a sudden Chinese investment is coming in and goods and services you spoke of are freely accessible and infrastructure is being built with Chinese investment, and your teenager begins to be aware of uh, Chinese cell phones, Chinese smartphones, Chinese games. Um, they may not have been as exposed to Hollywood and you know Western games. Um, there's a bit of a battle for future young minds, uh, potentially, as one of the uh, elements of the Belt and Road policy. And I wonder, um, how do we discuss this so that kids can understand that they need to make their own choices in terms of What's important to them? Well, if we take as our prism here, let's call it um, the emerging world, emerging economies, what used to be called the developing world and at an earlier stage, the G77. In other words, countries out there, apart from the old Soviet Union and, uh, and Eastern Europe and what uh, was then and to some extent still is called the collective West, everybody else, in other words, most of the human race, um, Think of Africa, think of Latin America, think of most of Asia uh, and other bits and pieces in between. Uh, you're absolutely right, Jonathan, when you point to what I think is a de facto global competition for hearts and minds. Uh, the Chinese, uh, a country which I've studied all my adult life, uh, now going back uh, over the last 40 years, uh, have a deeply sophisticated uh, national uh, information service or what they called uh, propaganda service, uh, and the propaganda department was only recently renamed in English as the Central Publicity Department of the Central Committee of the Chinese Communist Party. And I think they've worked out that the word propaganda has a few problems with it in Western history, whether it's Soviet or Nazi Germany or the rest. But it's a very sophisticated apparatus, and they're looking at all the news information uh, platforms. It's no longer just some uh, glossy periodical produced by some a uh, crazy ideological department belonging to the Central Committee on why Marxism-Leninism is good for you as every anti-good breakfast cereal. It's a much more sophisticated business applying across their digital platforms and applying across uh, the global television network, which they now run in every country in the world, uh, global Chinese television, um, as well as other uh, print-based uh, publications as well. And the overall message is... Here is a new reality. Uh, here is something which is increasingly fun and entertaining. Chinese movies, in my experience, are getting better. They're becoming more action-laden and, and the usual stories of love and romance and all the rest of it. Uh, not as exciting as Hollywood, but it's not 
you know, a 10 versus 1 comparison anymore. It's more like a 9 versus 4 comparison, but the gap is, is closing. So for young folk growing up in, let's call it the developing world, uh, this will have some attractions. There's one other factor as well. In the national histories of the developing world, it's only white folks in the collective West who basically screwed them, colonized them, uh, over many centuries, in some cases four to five centuries. China did not do that. So the Chinese actually start with, let's call it, an historical advantage, uh, which is in the conceptual world of emerging Africa, emerging Asia, emerging Latin America. Uh, China didn't colonize these places. Uh, countries like Britain, France, uh, to some extent Germany, certain, certainly the Iberians, uh, Spain and uh, Portugal. And latterly, if you come from the Philippines, the United States, well, they were in the colonial or the neo-colonial business. China was not. Climate change is one arena in which many believe that the U.S. and China had an immense opportunity to cooperate and uh, put aside their differences and uh, do the right thing. Uh, as traditional and al alternative energy companies compete for market share around the world, is there a way that China and the United States might return to cooperation and that those companies in those sectors can provide an example of ways to cooperate in other sectors? Well, the future of the planet, uh, which is a reasonably important subject for those of us who live on planet Earth, there's nothing more existential than what we do about climate change and whether we can keep temperature increases within two degrees centigrade in the 21st century. If we go beyond that, we start to induce um, not just unsustainable but potentially irreversible changes in the climate, which therefore affect um, not just extreme weather events, not just uh, drought and flood, but also as a consequence food supplies, climate uh, migration flows, climate refugees, and the geopolitics which flows from all of the above. This is a big factor. Secondly, when I was first elected to office, um, I was um, struck with a cacophony of indifference from both American and Chinese political leaders back in 2007. It's only a decade or so ago, really. Bush administration, head firmly planted in the sand, um, and the Chinese administration, head uh, beginning to think about the science, but frankly, utterly preoccupied with economic uh, survival in what became the global financial crisis. Roll a clock ahead, by the time we get to the Copenhagen Conference of 2009 on climate change, we see the United States under Obama having changed 180 degrees, um, but the Chinese at best by that stage having changed by about 45 degrees. Roll a clock ahead and we get to Paris toward the end of the Obama administration at the end of 2015. Uh, Obama uh, still uh, on, on track given his desire and legitimate and absolute need for global climate change leadership. And finally, the Chinese had then flipped themselves uh, to become uh, global climate change activists for reasons of national economic survival. Then, of course, we're into the current phase where President Trump and uh, the legion of climate change denialists who now surround him uh, all simply are saying it's a hoax, the science is not proven, and will dismantle various of the measures the Obama administration put in, including those which are restricting the uh, emissions 
uh, from certain cri critical industries in the United States, which the Obama administration did by regulatory control. In the meantime, the Chinese, however, under Xi Jinping, are continuing domestically uh, their range of climate change actions, both on renewable energy, both on uh, uh, restrictions on uh, carbon-based energy and emissions, and now assessing the performance of their provincial governors and mayors on their environmental and climate and carbon performance in particular. So that brings us to the present. Sorry for the long background. So what have I concluded from all this? I think the Chinese, for reasons of national survival, have decided they're going to try and crack this nut anyway because it's no point them searching for their economic moment in the sun when by mid-century they become the global dominant economic power only to have destroyed the planet and they're part of it on the way through. So what I see and sense each time I go to China is a quickening and intensification of the pace by government and non-government and by corporate actors across China to bring about their domestic renewable energy revolution, to radically change uh, energy efficiency regimes and to ultimately lessen their dependency on coal and carbon more generally. So in the United States, uh, Donald Trump ain't the end of history. Um, I think there's a degree of excessive national pessimism about that in the United States on the question of climate. I see uh, things here beyond the federal government continuing at a pace. Uh, in fact, 60% of uh, American emissions, I'm advised, are currently governed and controlled either by state governments, municipal governments, and individual American energy corporations and others uh, involving people who intend to act anyway uh, to reduce carbon emissions because of either a sense of deep planetary responsibility or because their shareholders and financiers are saying, unless you do this, we're going to walk out of your company or cut off the lines of financial supply because of our reputational risk. So at that level, I think there is a reasonable basis for continued optimism. These two giant emitters, the United States and uh, the People's Republic of China, uh, below the surface and sometimes above the surface will continue to work with each other. But the sort of Damocles for us all is that even if we implement the full range of the Paris commitments agreed to in December 15, that's one third of the global action necessary to keep temperature increases within two degrees by the year 2099. You mentioned Donald Trump not being the end of history where the climate is concerned. Um, speaking of change. Um, what does the average American uh, need to think about vis-a-vis -vis China going into the midterm elections? I think um, uh, what the United States uh, and its people should reflect on with China is, first of all, China is not about to become like America or any other Western country anytime soon. Certainly not this half century. There's a reason for it. It's just the depth and the impact of its own civilizational tradition and the absence within it of, let's call it, uh, liberal democratic traditions, whether it's in Confucian China or Communist China, to draw upon. And the market economy uh, explosion has been a relatively recent one. So China is an enormous state of flux. But understand that in that flux, previous Western and American assumptions that it was going to end up translating into something which kind of more or less look like a, a liberal democratic country, however small d the democratic part of it was, uh, I think is misplaced. Second thing they should be mindful of 
is that China, uh, within the constraints of, but aided also by its own domestic economic model, will continue to occupy a bigger and bigger global economic footprint, not just through the headline initiatives such as the Belt and Road Initiative, but more broadly across, um, let's call it, the global economic ecosphere. Uh, and thirdly, China's national power as a consequence of that, including its military power, is increasing as well. So as Americans go into the midterms, uh, we are at a sobering moment in the US-China relationship. I've written elsewhere uh, that uh, 2018 will be looked at in history as a deep watershed uh, in the history of the US-China relationship. It's the formal end of 40 years of strategic engagement and the formal declaration of the beginning of a period of strategic competition between the two. So here's the rub. For Americans going to vote, and I'm just a foreigner, I'm not going to tell anyone how to vote in this country, get shot down uh, within 30 seconds, and rightly so. It's your country, not mine. Mind you, we share the planet with you, and what you do does make uh, a difference is be very mindful in who you are selecting for your legislators for the future, and two years' time, the presidency of the United States, about someone who has this China relationship for America at the absolute center of their priorities, uh, that they also have at the center of their priorities how we preserve globally and not just nationally the freedoms we've somewhat painfully secured over hundreds of years of history, both in politics and in the economy and in commerce and in the, the lives, the individual lives of our citizens uh, as these new challenges and changes emerge without thirdly having someone in the Congress or the White House who simply thinks that this can all be solved by reaching for a trigger. Kevin Rudd, thank you very much for joining us on Asia Inside Out. This is Jonathan Landreth signing off. Thanks very much, Jonathan.